You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. All right, continuing in Revelation, uh, Revelation 12 tonight. Uh, just real quick review, because I'm going to say this every week. Revelation is not a puzzle to solve. It's not this code to crack. Uh, Revelation reveals. And what Revelation reveals to us is Jesus. This book is written for us so that we would be encouraged, so that we would endure. And so John's goal is not to hide things, but to uncover things. We've also said that Revelation works like the instant replay at a football game where it looks at the same series of events from different camera angles so that you get the full picture of what's going on. And Revelation looks at the events of Christ's first coming and his second coming and everything in between and looks at it from some different angles so that we would get a full picture of what God is doing even as we wait now for Christ's second coming. But it does this through visions, right? Uh, John is not giving like this logical argument where he's going step by step and building to this grand conclusion. He's seeing visions. And he looks and he sees Christ walking among the seven lampstands. And then he turns and he looks and he sees Christ beside the Father on the throne looking like a lamb who was slain. And then he sees Christ opening the seals and seeing uh, the plan of history unfold. This week, we're looking at a, a new kind of camera angle. Uh, we're skipping over the seven trumpets. Um, you can read that on your own. It's kind of similar to the scrolls, so we're skipping right by it. Uh, but this camera angle kind of focuses on conflict, uh, and it has a really wide-angle lens that kind of takes in the whole scope of history, uh, the, the, the background of the conflict that has been going on really since creation itself. So I'm going to read Revelation 12 for us, and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. <clears throat> A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray and we'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. We pray that as we look at this passage tonight, that you would encourage us, build us up, help us to endure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, All right, so we're just going to jump right in. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 in Revelation 12, um, it's the Christmas story, right? And it lays out the characters of this great conflict that's going on behind the scenes. In verses 1 and 2, we get the woman. Uh, And the woman in this chapter represents several different things, uh, but in short, the people of God. She represents the Old Testament people of God. She represents the church, the New Testament people of God. Uh, In some ways, she represents Eve and she represents Mary. Uh, But the woman here is the people of God. We get a a couple little hints about this. Uh, She's got this crown of 12 stars, uh, which kind of looks back to the vision that Joseph had way back in the Old Testament. Remember, he had these dreams and he was given these visions by God. uh, And the different tribes of Israel were represented by stars. But also throughout the Old Testament, especially later in the Old Testament, in the prophets, Israel is often kind of personified as a woman. And then later in Revelation, we see the people of God portrayed as a woman, the bride of Christ. So the woman here in chapter 12 represents the people of God, you and me. We're in this story as the woman. And then you've got the dragon in verses 3 and 4. It's Satan. It's the devil. It's not really hard to figure out just by the images in verses 3 and 4, right? It's red, the color of blood. It's terrifying. It's powerful, right? It sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky with its tail. But we're helped by Scripture, right? Because verse 9 tells us outright, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we've got the woman, the church, the dragon, who is Satan, and then the child, Jesus, who is, get, who is being born. And there's this comment in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Whenever you read that in Scripture, a rod of iron, that's an allusion to Psalm 2. And you'll read it a lot in Scripture because it's the most alluded to psalm in the New Testament. Most of the authors at some point point back to Psalm 2 and ascribe it to Jesus. Because Psalm 2 is all about the futility of opposition to the Lord's anointed. It's all about this question of like, why do the kings of earth keep struggling against the one that God has appointed? And Psalm 2 points us to Jesus, points us to Christ. And so whenever you see like somebody holding a rod of iron, you're supposed to think Jesus. And what John is saying in these first six verses is that this is the conflict behind all conflicts, right? Satan versus the people of God and the Son of God. And if you're not a believer tonight, or maybe if you are a believer, that sounds Looney Tunes, right? Like, that sounds bananas. Like, really? Spiritual warfare. 
that's what we're talking about tonight? Like the devil with the pitchfork and the horns or this like great big dragon? Like you actually believe that that's out there, Andrew? Well, yes and no. Uh, If you look back at verses 1 and 3, you see this at the beginning of them. A great sign appeared in heaven. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. When John is talking about the dragon and about the woman, he says that they're both signs. And what do signs do? They point to something beyond themselves, to something real. Uh, My answer to the icebreaker tonight, what are you doing for fall break, is that me and my wife are going west. Uh, We're going to see Grand Canyon, Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon. Uh, Really excited about it. And the first weekend, our hotel is in this little town that's right at the entrance to Grand Canyon National Park. Like, our, our hotel is like within sight of the sign for the Grand Canyon. And one of the things that we'll do when we get there is like we'll walk around and see the town and go out to eat and maybe take a picture by the sign. But it would be ridiculous for us to get in a plane, fly all the way across the country, take a picture in front of the sign, and never like go into the park and see this giant hole in the ground. Right, Because the sign is not what you come for. The sign points beyond it and says, like, hey, there's something really cool if you keep going down this road. And John is saying that these signs point to something real. So do I believe that there's some like invisible, giant, red, seven-headed, ten-horned dragon? No. But I do believe in this thing that the sign points to. That there's Satan, right? That he's real, that he exists. And that he's the enemy of God's people. And, and I think that, like, spiritual answer to the confusion and kind of just, like, disorientation that we often feel, um, for some reason when we think about it in Christianity, it just sounds crazy. But some other areas where it shows up, it doesn't. So I want to suggest to you tonight that, like, it, it might not be as hard for you to believe this as you think it is, uh, because you know that your existence is not explained fully by the physical and the material, right? You know that things like music and beauty and a good story and fear and love and despair and joy, they like hit you in a place that biology and physics and pheromones can't explain, right? And you know that some of those things, right? Despair, fear, like just shouldn't be there, right? There's this discord in the non-physical aspect of our existence. And there's all kinds of explanations for why this is. Right? You hear talk, people talk about like what goes around comes around, or sometimes they'll actually name it karma. Right? Do good things, and good things happen, and do bad things, and bad things happen. If you're a fan of My Name is Earl, it's a great show. You should watch it. Um, you hear people talk about, like, I'm just waiting for the universe to give me a sign. Right? Like there's some cosmic energy with intentionality and a plan that's going to like make the clouds align and send you a message that says you should like, move to this town and do this or that. Or, recently, um, astrology has become a big thing again, right? Not astronomy, not like getting out a telescope and looking at stars and planets and all that, but like astrology, right? Like, I'm a Gemini, and that describes why I act this way. Or Saturn was in, like, waxing gibbous or something (laughs) when I was 13, and so that's why I'm left-handed, right? Like, these these metaphysical—I'm not left-handed, and I don't know what my star sign is, so— Don't ask me. Um, But like these metaphysical explanations for our existence, right? And and I know that for some people, like it's just this fun, weird little hobby. But like there's some people that take it real serious. And you're like, are you sure this is just a hobby? Or are you actually like kind of invested in this? 
all of these are attempts to give explanation to the spiritual aspects of our existence. And, and I want you to entertain tonight that John's explanation is another one of those, right? It's the Bible's explanation for that spiritual aspect to our existence. That part of the spiritual, out, spiritual reality we all inhabit and struggle to articulate is that there is a conflict, right? I'm not asking you to like buy in 100%, but just like try it on, see if it fits with your experience. So what is this conflict? We see it in verse 4, right? The dragon is lying in wait to devour the child of the woman that hasn't even been born yet. Why? What's going on here? What, or what are we supposed to think of? Well, this is actually not the first time in the Bible that we see these three characters together. The woman, the dragon, and the child. All the way back in Genesis 3, after the fall, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve and a promise slash threat to the serpent, the one who deceived Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, God says this, I will put enmity, hatred, between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All of, all of the characters are there, right? You've got the serpent, right? The, the deceiver, who in the garden is a serpent, but here in Revelation, the end of history, right? The incarnation of Christ is this like huge, terrifying dragon. You've got the woman, Eve, but by the time we get to Revelation 12, by the time we get to the incarnation, she's become not just one person, but a people, right? Uh, John describes her as standing on the moon with this, like, robed with the sun or something like that. Like, she's this, this bright, radiant people. And you've got the child, in Genesis 3, it's just the promise of a child, but in Revelation 12, we are in the delivery room. And it is because of this promise that the dragon is there, trying to devour the child. It's actually because of this promise that like, the story of the Old Testament happens, because Satan, over and over and over, the dragon, tries to stamp out the line of Eve, tries to, to overcome the people of God so that this child will not be born. Sometimes he does this by extermination, right? Pharaoh in Exodus murders a whole generation of little Hebrew boys, right? And enslaves the rest of the people. Sometimes Satan does this by perversion, by what we call apostasy, walking away from God, right? Corrupting the people of God and leading them away from him. Sometimes Satan just does it by opposition, right? Sending the Philistines or the Babylonians, or the Assyrians, or the Persians, or whoever it is to conquer the people of God. But nothing works, right? God preserves his people. God preserves a remnant all throughout the story of the Old Testament. And 2,000 years ago, despite Satan's best effort, the baby is born. And even then, Satan doesn't give up, right? He tries to use Herod, right, to deceive the wise men so that they would come back and tell him where this infant king is. That fails, so Herod then, like Pharaoh, kills all the baby boys in that region to try and exterminate the king. That fails. And all throughout Jesus' public ministry, you see this conflict rage, and you see Jesus at every turn defeating Satan. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus undoes the curse, restoring sight to the blind, healing the sick, making the lame walk. Jesus unravels deception, the devil's favorite tool, exposing abuse and corruption telling people what he's really like, what his father is really like, what grace really means. Over and over and over, Jesus is unraveling the work of Satan. 
And there's one time in the Gospels where like, Jesus himself pulls back the curtain to let the disciples see that this is what's going on. Uh, he sends out the disciples to towns that he's about to visit, and he tells them, as you go, talk about the kingdom, heal the sick, tell people about me, and that I'm coming to visit, like prepare the way for me. And when Luke writes about their uh, coming back to Jesus, he says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus's power, Jesus's authority is so great that even his followers are given authority over Satan. And then Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It sounds an awful lot like Revelation 12. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Because of the ministry of Jesus, Satan is cast out of heaven. He's no longer welcome. He no longer has a place there. He and all his angels thrown out. We'll come back to that in a minute. Ultimately, Satan has Jesus killed, executed on a cross as a criminal. But like at what looks like victory for Satan and defeat for Christ, that at that moment, his weapon is turned against him. Christ raises from the dead because death cannot hold the child. And he's taken up to heaven as Revelation 12, 5 says. And from there, he rules and he reigns. Satan has been defeated. Genesis 3 language, his head has been bruised or crushed. And the child is taken up to heaven, caught up to God, not because he needs protection, but because he won. And so what does Satan do now? Look at verse 13. When the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Or verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Although he's been defeated, Satan refuses to admit it. He refuses to quit. He's like an army that loses a war, and instead of just surrendering and laying down their arms, he retreats into the jungle and he goes guerrilla. Right? He strikes from the shadows, he disrupts and sows chaos and seeks to undermine any authority and rule. And who is Satan targeting with this work? Well, he can't get at Jesus anymore, so he goes after the woman, the church, you and me. This last section is called the comfort. And some of you are thinking, like, that's not great news, right? Um, remember that this book is written to encourage believers, John wrote this to the seven churches and to us to help us endure until Jesus returns. But this seems like a pretty big discouragement, right? Satan himself is coming after the church. What hope do we have? Well, I think there are three things here in this chapter that make Revelation 12 one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible for us. Three things that if we can see them, they really do help us to endure. The first thing, Satan's pursuit of the church his hatred of her, his hatred of you, is proof that you are loved by God. Um, why does Batman wear a mask? Right? Why is he so intent on not revealing that he's Bruce Wayne? Why doesn't Peter Parker fight with his face bared for all to see so that he can glory in their praise and accolades? It's because they know what every villain knows, that the way to hurt someone untouchable is to go after the person that they love. 
Jesus, make no mistake about it, is untouchable. He has defeated Satan. Satan has no more schemes, no more strategies, no more tricks up his sleeve that he can use against Jesus. And Satan is cast out of heaven where Jesus now is ruling and reigning. In so many ways, Satan can't touch Jesus. He can't get to him. So what does he do? He goes after the one that Jesus loves, the church. So when you feel the opposition of Satan, whether it's temptation, deception, accusation, persecution, you can take comfort knowing that the reason you have a target on your back is because you are beloved of God. Satan will even try to use his own persecution of you as proof of the opposite, right? Jesus wouldn't let this happen to you if he really loved you. But the reason that Satan is coming after you in the first place is because Christ finds you as his beloved. And Satan hates what Jesus loves. That should be encouraging to us, right? But here still, maybe there's a little bit of head scratching, right? Like, yes, it's encouraging that that's proof that I'm loved. I still have a target on my back. And that's not great. So number two that should encourage us, we are not left alone to defend ourselves in this. Over and over throughout this passage, John reminds us that even though Satan is aiming at the church, she is protected. In verse 6, we read this. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. In verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. And a couple verses after that, the dragon like spews out this river from his mouth somehow, because dragons usually breathe fire, uh, and the earth like opens up and swallows the river and protects the woman. Jesus has not left us to fend for ourselves in the struggle against Satan. In the face of temptation, he's left us his spirit, right, who lives in us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. In the face of accusation, he's given us forgiveness. In the face of persecution, he's given us himself, right, who, who, has, been, who has risen from the grave. Right? Fear of death is no longer a thing for believers who see that Christ has defeated death. Right? So persecution, what do we have to fear there? As John says, uh, they have conquered him. This is verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. We as believers can hold even our lives loosely, knowing that in Christ they'll be given back to us even better. And in the face of deception, Christ has given us his word, the truth. He's given us one another. Deception is one of Satan's favorite tools, and Christ has given us a way to fight back against that. He's given us his word and one another. Do you realize that the Christian community is supposed to do that for you? Right? Be a defense against the deception of the devil? We're given one another in part to encourage one another and spur one another on towards love and good deeds, but we're also given one another to help us stay awake, to stay alert, to see those parts of our, our hearts that, that we can't see. Right? Other people look at my life and see things that I miss, and I, I look at other people's lives and see things that they miss. Right? Because sometimes the deception, it, it takes the form of sin and blindness to our sin. So maybe we don't see the way that our anger pushes everyone in our life away. Or that we don't see the way that our pride causes us to step away from others and hold ourselves aloof. Maybe you don't see the way that our selfishness or desire for control causes us to use others. Maybe we're convinced and convincing ourselves that that thing that I'm doing really isn't that big of a deal. 
And for that, God gives us others to lovingly point out sin and call us to repentance. And God has put you in other people's lives so that you might lovingly and gently, not like, hey, you're a jerk, you need to deal with that, but lovingly and gently point out sin in one another's life and call them to repentance and newness of life. Sometimes deception looks like sin. Sometimes deception looks like believing a lie, that Jesus doesn't love you, that that thing you've done like takes you out of his forgiveness, that the Father doesn't see you, or that when he looks at you, he's just like disappointed all the time and just waiting for you to do better, that you're too far gone. For that, God gives us others to draw us back in, to point us to Jesus, not as we fear he is in our minds, but as he's actually revealed to us in his word. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb who has been slain, the one who is on the throne, the one who walks among the lampstands. As you come back from fall break, I'd encourage you to think about, like, how do I do this for others? How can I grow in this area? And are there other people in my life who are invited to do this for me? To look at me and say, hey, like, do you realize that you're deceived in this area? Do you do you know that like, you're clinging to sin here and that it's killing you? So the first encouragement, this opposition proves that we're loved. Second encouragement, this opposition, um, it shows us that we are not left alone. And third encouragement, this chapter, I think, more than anywhere else in the Bible, shows us the pettiness of Satan. Right? It helps us look at him and be just like, you're a child. Because look at verse 10. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the accuser. It's what he does. Right? If you remember, uh, if you've ever read the book of Job, or at least started the book of Job, and before you get lost in all the philosophical debate in the middle, the opening chapter, right, what happens Satan is in the heavenly throne room accusing Job to God, right? He only loves you because you give him stuff, right? Job's faith isn't real, and it's weird, right? We read that, and we're like, what on earth is Satan doing in heaven, right? And and it's good that we feel that that's weird because he's not allowed there anymore, right? Remember, in the ministry of Jesus, Satan is cast out of heaven. He's cast down. Because if he could, Satan would talk God's ear off about the things that you and I have done, right? Every evil deed, every stray thought, everything. But God, in kicking Satan out of heaven, has effectively said, I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm not listening to you. But aren't those accusations true, right? Like, aren't the things that that Satan says about you to some degree true? Aren't, Aren't we guilty? And the answer is yes, we are. But again, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Because of the ministry of Jesus, Satan has been cast out of heaven. Why? Because in Jesus' ministry, our sins are dealt with. Scripture talks about this all kinds of different ways, right? They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And maybe somebody's pointed this out to you before, but like, you can travel north and eventually you're traveling south again. You can travel west forever, right? There, There is no measuring the distance that God has removed your sins from you. Your sins are blotted out. They are covered, forgotten, forgiven. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, the passage on the front of your handout. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Paul is saying, in other words, like, does anyone want to bring any charge against God's elect? No, good, because God has justified his people. He has said, not guilty. No charge will stand. The verdict has already been given. And yet, Satan is still Satan. Right? The accuser is still the accuser. It's in his nature. And so what he does is he reminds you and me of all the things that we've done. Right? Don't you dare forget about that thing you said in seventh grade. Don't, don't you dare forget about that thing you thought. How can you call yourself a Christian after what you watched on your computer this afternoon? Or he'll ridicule, right? You thought you were so good. You thought you were such a good Christian and that you would never do those things at college. How long did it take for you to do all the things that you never thought you would? That's what Satan does. He parades before us our our sins, our pride, our jealousy, our sexual sin, our anger, our hatred and pettiness and selfishness and academic dishonesty and theft and deception and on and on and on. And he says, don't forget it. And it stings because it's pretty much true, right? But here's the thing. Here's the question I want you to consider tonight. Why is he accusing you to you? Right? You're not the judge. You don't have any authority over like you. Right? Why is Satan accusing you to you? Because your father doesn't listen to him anymore. You are as high on the food chain as Satan can go. Right? And so because Satan can't get God's ear to condemn you, he'll whisper in yours, to steal away your joy in the Father. How petty is that, right? I've lost, I'm defeated, my time is short, I'm just going to make you as miserable as I can, right? And so we look at the devil and he's like, shut up. My Father doesn't listen to you, I'm not listening to you either. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins, even the ones that you can't bear to think about and much less mention. God has passed the verdict, not guilty. So when you hear the accusations of the devil, when he reminds you of all that stuff you'd rather forget, when he heaps on guilt for things that are covered by the blood of the lamb, what do you do? If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movie, you know um, that there's these four siblings and one of them is a traitor, right? Edmund comes, he wants to be in charge, he wants to rule, and so he sells out his siblings to the white witch and says, hey, they're going to meet Aslan at this place called the Stone Table, uh, and it, it turns out that like the witch was lying to him the whole time because, surprise, she's a witch. Uh, but he eventually gets rescued and brought back to his family, brought to Aslan's camp, and Aslan is Jesus, it's not a subtle metaphor. Um, and, and Aslan and Edmund go away and they have this conversation And then when he comes back, Edmund is visibly different. And then the witch shows up at the camp. She comes up and she accuses Edmund. She says, Aslan, you have a traitor there. And traitors belong to me. And there's this whole conversation and whole debate that goes back and forth. But C.S. Lewis has this like little comment about Edmund. He like almost doesn't seem to be paying attention. He says, Edmund didn't really listen to what the witch had to say. He just kept looking at Aslan. So what do you do when you hear the accusations of the devil? When he reminds you of all the stuff you'd rather forget? When he heaps on guilt for things that are covered in the blood of the lamb? You keep looking at Jesus. You say, yes, you're absolutely right. I did those things, and I so wish that I hadn't. But I didn't bring anything to the table to make me worthy of Jesus' love. He loves me because he loves me. And even though I don't have anything, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I'm in him, and, and he's mine, and... and 
And so in him I have everything. So kindly please shut up, devil. Kindly please go to hell. Like my father doesn't listen to you. I'm not, I'm not listening to you either. Revelation chapter 12 shows us the love of God for us, the love of Christ for us. And even the persecution that we experience from the devil is proof that God loves us. And in it, we're not left alone. And it shows us how thoroughly beaten our adversary is, that the best he can do is accuse you of things that your father has blotted out of existence. Look at Jesus. Know his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ just how thorough and complete it is, that so much so that you won't even listen to accusation against us because it's been dealt with, it's been covered, it's been forgiven. Father, we know that in our heads, help us to believe it in our hearts. When we feel the accusations of the devil, when we feel temptation and persecution and discouragement, and when we see others being deceived, Father, help us to remember your love for us. Help us to know that that's proof of your love for us. Help us to remember that we're not alone. And help us to just keep looking at you and enjoying the forgiveness that you've given and live in joyful response to that. Do this, we pray, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen.